Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 348th episode of Constructed Criticism. I'm your hyperbolic time host, Mason, and I'm joined by time skipper, Allie. Allie, how you doing? <clears throat> uh, still trying to wake up. I had a very wild dream, so oh, I'm yeah? out of it. Yeah. I, I had a dream that I was visiting my parents and they had a bowling alley in their attic. But it was, like, a really popular one that attracted, like, hundreds of people. Oh, wow. During the vid? I think my dream was, like, not. Oh, so it wasn't a nightmare. It was a happy dream. I do get those nightmares, though, of, like, going to the store and no one's wearing a mask. And I'm not wearing a mask. How do you mean the South? (laughs) I have a dream of the South. (laughs) I dream I live in Tennessee. That would that would give me a ton of anxiety. Yeah, they're actually much better about it. We've reached a point now where, uh, like, basically where everyone has it. it. Well, you know, it's more for show. Obviously, we don't have it here. <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> no, there was a bit where I want to say around June, because June's when I started going back to work, and we would have to give patients masks all the time. And when I went to the store, it was like never. And I would say by August, September, it was 90% of the places and people had them. And then by October, it was like basically everyone. Like it's more like it's someone pops out, they don't have a mask, you know, where at the start of it, they kind of popped out if they had masks. Um, Yeah, I I think here in like Wisconsin and um, my parents in Illinois, it was it's pretty much like everyone does wear a mask but i think that's just because it's like a law or like most businesses like make you so like i think a lot of people wouldn't sure if they had the option but they don't really have the option so yeah probably not appropriate for the podcast but i can't wait to tackle that hill once they get injected with pfizer and they have to realize they still need to wear it for a while anyways (laughs) today we're going to talk all about historic and preparation for the arena open. We've been gone for a couple weeks. We had Thanksgiving and then we had some personal stuff and then my computer died and now I'm using my old, it, old computer. <laughs> his computer actually just like exploded. It was very weird. It basically did. It, it, oh God, it's so frustrating. I have to like ship that off today. But we're on. Luckily, I was able to dig up my old computer. I hadn't got rid of it when i bought the the new one during the vid so we're, we're running an old faithful here or as i call her betsy i thought betsy might say something i was really hoping that the computer would do something hi like betsy that. yeah it's, it's pretty rude on you to not say anything to you when she was shy like that but it's okay i forgive you um but yeah ally what has been your always improving moment for the last month since we've been gone um i think at least going into the historic open the other day or the other week um i kind of just did what i always do and stream a bunch of different decks especially like the ones that did well at the pt and so i ended up streaming blue white control and it actually was pretty good and i was very surprised i actually ended up taking it to um day one of the arena open and i think just like the lesson there is as much as like i kind of um 
don't like playing against control or like don't take blue white seriously all the time like sometimes you just have to be open-minded and actually be willing to try things kind of that are outside of your realm of like what you think is correct yeah like you have to put aside pre-built up like uh opinions we- yeah just like the personal biases i guess where i'm like okay blue white control is just like a bad deck and always will be a bad deck but i ended up playing it because i think it actually like served a really good purpose in the format at that point yeah and those sort of things happen too and i think it's good to have those like to an extent it's good to have like notions and thoughts on a format so that when the time comes to prepare for it or compete in it you're ready to go but uh, yeah, it's good to be able to check those biases, and you know, at the time, if if the moment is right, it's good to be able to pivot. So that's good. Except for you know, of course, for rogues, you'll never play rogues, despite how good it is. So that makes me sad. Maybe one day on the podcast, we'll talk about how you play rogues, and then no I won't rogues. be sad. Yeah, no cool, no doubt. I was choking too. Ha ha. Uh, my always improving moment uh, while we were been away has been a similar-ish thing. I, I've just been forcing myself to play, like, the best deck, uh, basically at all times, or the most consistent deck. I, I have a pretty strict rule for when playing things like the SCGs. Uh, it was really strict in person, but especially online, where the, the the line is a fine deck. Like, just something that's totally reasonable, something totally solid. So, like, Mono Green Food, for example, has been kind of the default answer for this, where one week it was probably the best deck, and the week after that was probably, like, just a totally good deck or whatever that's consistent and just making sure that we play good reasonable decks that aren't like some weird like level three metagame call we're not doing something crazy we're just playing good decks that are going to perform we're going to play good magic and i missed out on top eight of the scgs twice playing that so that's where i've been at during all of the uh the vid time and while we've been away on the podcast so i don't know Allie, what do you what do you feel about just this is the thing I always thought about, especially for in-person SCGs, but you can't be choosing these crazy wild decks. There's just too much diversity in the field and like what people are bringing. You need to just make sure you're picking at least fine decks. Hopefully the best deck, but if you're unsure, you should pick a deck that's at least consistent. Yeah. Um, I'm much more likely to like metagame one of these online tournaments, kind of just because there is a sort of qualification system to them, even if it's... Um, not as intensive as like a ptq or something mm-hmm. it, even if it's just like four to an scg satellite or something of the sorts like people at least had to qualify they're probably not gonna bring a spicy brew whereas in-person scgs or gps you can spend 60 or 80 dollars and play um tr- d- squid tribal and you can just do that and um unfortunately with my luck if i try and like metagame too hard i end up losing to squid tribal so uh, essentially in like paper events that I don't that have like a highly <laughs> i love there's that... a deck you're thinking of and the viewers out there that figure out what deck ally hates and thinks is terrible that squid tribal relates to you can continue with your serious <laughs> point now but we both know that you're about to say a, a real deck there and you don't want to offend anybody and I, I love it you know who you are you're thinking is that me and if you have to ask the question you know the answer it, yeah if you have to ask it's definitely you um 
But yeah, like I, I'll, I'll get paired into Squid Tribal and then absolutely lose. So I think there's definitely a point there of selecting your deck per tournament and who's playing in the tournament for sure. For sure, it's surprising um, how many people in these SCGs actually play like weird decks, like like in the in the day two portion. Uh, I, I have played against a lot of. And, like, obviously, sample size is small, and that's, like, a me thing. It's not like everyone's reporting back on this. But I, I am constantly uh, kind of shook at what people end up bringing in and what, like, does well enough to qualify. Like, in Historic, uh, this past week on one of the satellites, an Abzan ETB Yorgon deck qualified for day two or for the, the big, a big event that was, like, a Yorgon deck with lands three Othakaias, and the, the rest of the deck was ETB creatures. So it was, like, Elvish Visionary, El, like, uh, Llanowar Visionary, like, all of those type of cards. Like, uh, Huntmaster of the Fells, whatever the, the, the green-white Huntmaster is. Like, it was just those cards. And I've never seen anything like that in Historic before. <laughs> but it, it qualified, you know? And I, it I looks... do think there's something to be said specifically about Historic and kind of just starting to get the ball rolling on it being a competitive format i just don't think there's enough like testing groups or like obviously like testing houses anymore anything going on that really changes the format like i think we've established what's the powerful cards and strategies in the format but like literally for the pt someone came up with this nine lives deck and now it's a part of the meta like i think people can be creative i think there's a ton of undiscovered decks in the format because the format's a lot bigger than standard and people just i don't know nothing nothing has like really changed since kaladesh but these new strategies kind of pop up and once people discover them then they like start to get a presence because of the rest of us filthy net deckers but <laughs> I, I think there's just like something to be said about that and um when everything's just kind of available online people are just going to net deck i'm gonna probably keep net decking but i i think there's a possibility that there's just a decent amount of undiscovered decks that are fine to good mm. here's my question to you is how much do you think the fact that the format and even if it's not true, but the narrative is that uh, Historic's an Uro Muxus format, and those are two cards that players typically do not love to play against. They might enjoy playing with, but they don't like playing against them. How much do you think that matters for Historic? Where I, I've seen kind of a, a leaving of Historic because like people don't want to play it for fun. It's not the cool format it once was. It's kind of just like, okay, the narrative is you play Uro or Muxus, and those are the things you do, and if you don't do that, you're kind of spewing equity, and your deck has to be able to beat those things, and that's very demanding. Yeah, I think that's a huge issue in, like, deck development, too. Like, if you don't have, like, 16 people working on a new deck that you're trying to brew around this, like, Yorion Abzan deck, if it's just, like, the one person working on it, at some point you get to the point where you're like, okay... I am working really hard to get less than a win percentage of Saltai because I just don't have the support to keep going in that direction. Like, maybe this one person has completely broken the format, but they just don't have the adequate support to do that, and everyone's just going to look at the data and be like, okay, Saltai has the best win rate, so I'm just going to play Saltai and Uro. And I do think that 
cards like Muxus and Uro turn people away from the format because they're just kind of miserable cards. Yeah, they they're definitely polarizing the play against and with at times. <clears throat> That's for sure. I think a lot of the time people like casually and competitively just like don't really enjoy cards that single handedly win the game and I think those two cards just do that. Yeah. That is true. That is true. All right, then. Well, we're going to get back to Historic here in just a little bit. But first, if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ccmtg. You can patron the show. You can also ask questions as a patron. Uh, and we'll answer them and read them out here on the show. This week we have, in a world where people have such easy access to just good deck lists, how do you know what sets something apart when picking a deck as Dirty Net Deckers? So, uh, Ali, how do you start the deck picking selection as a dirty net decker on twitch.tv slash mythic um if anyone here does watch my stream you know i just play pretty much everything and that's how i like to approach a format or even like approach testing i've had i've had this argument with some people before about like what's like the correct way to test and whatever and there's just like not one everyone tests differently everyone has different skills and like whatever but anyway um i i feel like mostly i'm someone who's really comfortable in my um technical play in that area so i tend to focus more on deck selection than like knowing the ins and outs of salt eye because i think i can play like a handful of matches with salt eye and just kind of like understand it because of the technical play aspect but coming to like the right choice is a lot harder for me so i just try and get a full view of the meta and see what feels right yeah i i typically think about things on like a bigger picture level and think about the way things interact and from that point, uh, when I'm looking at deck lists, I'm kind of, I normally have like a picture of what's in mind in a format. So like to use historic, for example, when I'm thinking about historic right now, leading into this arena open weekend in SCGs, I'm thinking about Sultai. I, I'm still thinking about goblins, despite it kind of ticking down a little bit, but I'm, I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about this new paradox engine deck that people really like, and I'm thinking about aggressive base deck. So like, Sacri excuse me, sacrifice auras, uh, a, a mono red to a lesser extent. Those sort of decks kind of pop up in my head, and I'm kind of thinking about how things interact with those and their place in the metagame. So, like an example might be if you look at the data from the PT that was two weeks ago now, um, Huey and Shahar and I believe Reed all played blue black control, and they did pretty well. And we can like look at blue black control and think about like how does this deck perform against the metagame, right? Like you have a lot of answers for creatures and things like that. So a deck like goblins, if you can prevent Muxus from cheesing you, right? Like you just count your Muxus, you should be able to clear up the board. It's got a lot of Narset, it's got a lot of ways to answer things. So maybe it answers like Uro pretty well. And then like, okay, I we're not really sure how this does against the Paradox deck. The Paradox is kind of new. We need to think about that a little bit. And so like off the top of my head, I'm not quite sure. And then aggro decks, kind of similar to goblins, but maybe they're a little quicker and not as grindy. So, like, can this deck answer that? The deck has, like, a lot of uh, board clears. It has a good amount of spot removal with, like, four fatal push. So I think it's pretty good in that way. And I look at, like, how the deck actually wins because the deck could have all the answers in the world, but if it can't win, 
it's not the best. <laughs> it's not really something at least I'm interested in historic. And the deck has Narset plus Torrential Gear Hulk to flasher, flashback Commit Memory as a way to win. And then it has Scare of God and Ashiok. So it has like a good amount of ways to win. And so like I'll look at that deck, think about it like that, and like a, a much more casual approach to something. Like not, not so formal like that. I'm kind of just thinking about it. I'm not really going through a checklist. And then that informs how I move forward with a deck or not. And then maybe there's something I like about the deck but it looks like it's missing, right? Like maybe, maybe the blue-black deck just had a bunch of essence scatters and it had no extinction events. And I'd be like, okay, I think extinction events really good or maybe I think languish is really good. All right, I'm going to go and try to play those cards in the deck. Maybe there's some place where we can move stuff. What were they thinking when they did this? Um, if Especially if I'm trying to save time. If I have all the time in the world, I'll play a deck without changing it and then figure out why because I assume people thought about this sort of stuff and came to conclusions especially people like Huey and reading them you know like I, I'm sure they did work but sometimes uh things change sometimes you get it wrong and sometimes you're just low on time with you know like work and life and stuff right and you're just like well I would love to play 30 matches of blue black control before I made any card changes but I have time for three I need to think about this and I need to make things happen because you know we are busy we do a lot of stuff so that's how I yeah. do it yeah I think uh good point there that you like touched on but then also changing it into my point was um i think i really like playing matches to like see what kind of changes i want to make to a deck that makes sense mm -hmm. um so like i feel like when i'm playing decks i'm thinking like what can i change what did i need here and like that's also the extent of my testing a deck as well like, yeah. do I need more cards for this matchup? How does it do, like, this matchup? Like, whatever, whatever. I think a very interesting concept, this is kind of a tangent, but a very interesting concept in sideboarding that I'd never really, like, considered until the other day was um, it, it's, like, possible to have too many cards for one matchup in your sideboard because you just don't have enough cards to take out of your deck. So that's just, like, another thing to consider when building your sideboard right like mm. just like don't put eight cards in your sideboard for assault eye if you only have seven slots to take out yeah also don't do that if it would delete your deck too much right like i, I find this problem with a lot of the racket sacrifice decks i don't know how you feel about this but they bring in like eight cards and it's just like i, I can't keep the pressure up <laughs> like <laughs> like I, I won't lose to her i promise but like i, I can't kill them in time <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, it, it, it that is definitely uh, an important thing to think about there, too. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's another thing, too, I think to think about is, um, like, things change. And so, like, make sure that you're changing with them and also make sure that you're not ruining plans, right? Like, if you change cards in the main deck, how does that affect the sideboard and vice versa? Um, and that, that is something I think about, too, when working on the net deck. Also, I will look for something that's shared a lot. This one last like bonus point, like if a deck's getting shared a lot and it's not a meme, like like there are decks that get shared that are like, yo, if you assemble these four cards, you kill them, and like, okay, that's cool, <laughs> you know, like that that's yeah. sweet. We all get it. <laughs> but like, if it's like, look at this Sultai deck that plays three Castle Lockthwains and some Scare of Gods at the main deck, right? And it's getting shared a bunch. It might just be because it's cool, but. It looks like a more much more reasonable deck, and so I'll spend some time and think about, okay, 
does having three Castle Oxway and Scarab God make my Soul Time midrange deck actually better, or is it just another way to do things? And then I will kind of work from that point. Because there are a lot of ways where you can change a deck like Soul Tie, right? And it just doesn't really matter. Like, you could cut that second Castle of Antris and play a second Castle Lockthwain in the stock builds right now. You're going to be fine. Your deck's still good. No doubts. <laughs> you know, like, it probably will not matter that much. And in certain spots, it will be way better than Vantress, and in certain spots, it will be way worse. But, yeah. Do, is that, like, an actual thing you should do? I think is a question not asked enough in Magic. So, um, that's my little side tangent there. Uh, another way to support us is you can go to Oasis Games and use code CCMTG at checkout to get 4% off your order and use code would that be good to get 15% off your first order. You can pick up some stuff for the old holidays. I think they had a holiday sale that might have, or they definitely had a Black Friday stuff, but I think they still have a little bit going on. I, I could be mistaken. I haven't looked in the last week, so I'm sorry if I'm wrong there. That's on you, not me. You should have listened to the episode that wasn't recorded. Alrighty then. <laughs> Time to talk about the historic metagame, Kaladesh Week 4, thanks to the good people at MTG Data. We're going to break down the decks that they have listed there to get you ready, and then we'll talk about what we would play, and there's anything else we feel that was left off the metagame. Ali, let's start off with the first deck here, four-color midrange. For those of you that don't know, this is an Uro deck, splashing white for Yasharn, Teferi, and to Kotli Onagari out of the sideboard. So, Ali, what do you think about four-color midrange? I think at least looking at this data set, it mirrors what I was talking about in previous weeks. I don't know if I mentioned it on the podcast, but I think playing four-color midrange just to play Yasharn in the main deck is terrible because you just, like, lose so much against non-sacrifice decks, and it kind of just, like, shows here anyway, right? It has poor win rates against everything except... The sacrifice decks yeah also against one of the sacrifice decks rakdos in particular it's 51.7 it's like not even like obviously uh, so jun so the jun sacrifice matchup it's a 61.7 percent win rate but rakdos sure like barely over the line and nowadays rakdos is much more popular than jund so mm-hmm. i also want to point out for people who um have been using these kind of data sets they're really helpful but Obviously, a lot in Magic, we never have perfect sample sizes, and for a lot of these matches, there's a um, not a good enough confidence interval to, like, draw a ton of meaningful conclusions. So, like, while this is the data, it's still, like, not 100%, right? Because if we're looking at this Racto Sacrifice numbers, like, the, the win rate goes from 39% to 64 with an average of 51.7, so... Uh, we need more data. Where, where, wait, where is that? On uh, underneath it, it says fifty-one percent, and then underneath it says thirty-nine percent to sixty-four. Oh, sorry, I, I misheard you. I thought you said the average win rate for Recto Sacrifice, and I was like, wait, I, I see Sacrifice at fifty-six. I think I'm on the wrong page. Oh, <laughs> no, for, no, no, no. For color. Yeah, yeah, range. yeah, yeah. You're good. I, I just had a moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah, obviously, yeah. these are these are data people, so they obviously made um highlighted the boxes that do have strong enough confidence intervals or adequate sample sizes but i think a lot of magic players kind of just skim over that and they're like oh four color versus racto sacrifice is a 51.7 percent win rate it's good for four color mid-range without like kind of digging further into the data and being like oh wait there's not really enough 
matches here, and uh, the the span between win, win rates is just enormous instead of a plus or minus ten percent. Yeah, it's funny because I was gonna kind of mention this at the end, but it's probably actually better that we did at the top. So I thank you for this. I I actually put very little stock into this, so we're we're using this because. A, it's a great place to have all this sort of information we kind of want when we're talking about the show in one spot for us. B, it's the sort of thing that we probably need more of in Magic is something like this. But the the data on these things change every single every single time there's a pro event. The decks that do well always shift and is always different than it is on these things. And a great example of this is Standard, where every single time you look at Rogues in Standard, since like the Omnath banning, Rogues has had a... 55% plus win rate on every single weekend that uh, pro, t- uh, pro players play in. It just is consistently like one of the best decks in the format. And every weekend besides that, without fail, it's a 50% or below deck on average. And I, I just, I, I find a lot of this data, not only is there not enough sample size, which is a, a huge part of all this, but like, like these are like relatively not a lot going into these sort of things. Like for this, for example, they have a a Japan Championship event going on. The satellites and the five K for the SCG. That's all the data that comes from this, which is like you know, like maybe five hundred, six hundred matches or something like that probably. But like, actually, I'm sure it actually says somewhere on here. Yeah, the sample size is like about two thousand matches. So it, it is yeah. a lot, but it's like actually just not enough to come to conclusions on like a lot of these things. Uh, especially yeah. when you look at how much other takes up, like uh, you can't see it here, but twenty percent of this data comes from other decks that are not categorized in the, the tier list thing. So that could be like the Abzan Yorgon we talked about. It could be Blue Black Control. There's just actually a lot of the data just is almost gone because of that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and there there's a ton of different issues with data collection and Magic in general. Like what which events are these drawing from uh, that. The, like the caliber of events obviously changes the data um but if we look at like there's only in this data set there's only 59 people who registered jun sacrifice if that was literally like no professional players playing that that's going to influence it compared to like if we say most of the professional players played the 65 paradox engine combo decks so, which is just kind of to say that's why we need huge sample sizes to just mitigate the player level disparity in these data sets. And you kind of just can't get that with such a small amount of sample size. Yeah, we also don't know the number of matches, but uh, like magic games are sometimes one on like hairs, right? But the, the computer, and, and this isn't a, a problem with data collection, it's just something we have to be realistic about, right? But, like, sometimes you win by a hair, right? Or because they mold a bunch. But the data can't say, Nine Lives has a 100% win rate against Soltime Midrange, Asterix, and are looking at the games, we saw that all the Soltime Midrange players mold to three, you know? But, like, when you get to decks like Nine Lives that are on this thing but have 20 decks representing them, things like... Okay, I believe that Nine Lives has a terrible blue-white control matchup, and that makes sense logically, right? So, like, on this on this data point, they have 0% win rate against blue-white control. But, like, that makes sense, but you could have a similar thing that pops up where just, just a low number of matches actually getting played when two decks are ones that have small sample sizes, right? Like, for example, Azorius Auras has 27 decks, it seems to be, 
uh, representing it here. And uh, I could look up the nine lives stat if you give me a second. So it's 33% against nine lives, right? But like if that was zero, there are so few um, decks being played, right? That like that samples, like the data might be coming from three matches, right? And it's like, well, maybe that's true. Or maybe the Azorius Auras players just didn't have enough time to like realistically draw their cyborg cards and that sort of thing. Like maybe that's not as bad a matchup as it appears to be. Um, Cause sometimes things like that do play out, but uh, yeah, I, with all that being said, I think there is still legitimacy to look at this, but I think the much healthier way and the better way to look at this is this is information. It is not the Bible, you know, like, like this is not like, okay, the data says that Sultai is 2% better than this other deck. And as such, Sultai, 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 you know, like, like that, that's fine to like, be like, oh, that's good to know this, but we should think about things still. Um, all right. Now that we did all that, let's talk about goblins. I hate goblins still. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a goblins fan. Yeah. G goblins, uh, did really well at, um, the last pro tour. We saw Autumn Burchett, um, pilot it to a finals lost, uh, through the losers bracket, and Goblins had some pretty big innovation there with Herald's Horn being added to the main deck um, as a way to not only generate uh, mana as like a basically at least one mana rock every time you guess as well, but also a way to draw cards, which is something that the Goblins deck actually kind of has a problem against like Sultai, where the Sultai and the blue-white decks can actually run Goblins out of things that matter, and then you kind of have to nickel and dime them, and it's really hard to nickel and dime them, but Herald Horn gives you an actual chance to do that, so... I like the innovation that Autumn and Emma did. Uh, they, they've continued to do great work on that sort of deck, but it is um, not really the most impressive deck to me. And I think it gets a lot of hate, and I think it doesn't do well against the hate. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, I think you can just build your deck to beat Goblins if you want to. And so it, it's really funny, the discussion to ban Moxus, right? Like, why ban Moxus if Goblins isn't even that like good or whatever and uh i mean quick side tangent that's just because like muxus even if your muxus hits perfectly like even if your deck is built to beat goblins you probably can't win that so it this deck is just so coin flippy it feels like you you literally have to be lucky it's not even a like haha my variance haha funny what like you it feels like you have to get as lucky as possible. Mm. And it's just eh. not a fan of those kind of decks in Magic. Yeah, I, I think what you hit on there of play experience, even if what you said isn't true, right? Like, your feelings are true. Like, I'm not, I'm not even saying that. I'm just saying, like, even if that wasn't the case, right? Your That is a common feeling and sentiment across players. And does that meaningfully add something to the format? I am unsure if that if it does. And I think that is worth having a conversation at that point, right? Like, if no one likes playing Luxus and it makes our players feel bad and they don't want to engage with the format and it's also pushing out all these other decks and it's warping the format around it, then why do we have this again? Like, especially with our, like, our format's different. We have this restriction list we can use, right? Like, we, we can put Muxus on the list for two weeks or three weeks and just see how players interact with Historic. And if it actually is worse... That sucks. We're sorry we did that. We we needed to test, and Muxus is back. Here you go. You know? That, that is a thing <laughs> that we can do pretty easily uh, in Historic. So, <laughs> um, 
But when it comes to the actual decks, like, I I think the Muxus deck has this really strong draw to it, where no matter what you're playing against, like Ali said, you can just play a Muxus, and if it resolves, you have a reasonable chance to win the game. Like, Haste Goblin, hopefully a Lord, and another Goblin and a Muxus is, like, normally 13 damage minimum out of nowhere. And that's a lot of damage. Like, even if you don't insta-kill them, just... Like, you know, kind of punching them in the face for 13 is a lot. So, I, I get why people play goblins. Like, that sort of allure is something that I normally would get drawn to. But I actually just find that even with Herald's Horn, its B plans are actually not that great. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, Chandra is actually a better, a, a more impactful B plan. But the format kind of doesn't allow you to play that sort of four-man do-nothing-in-your-goblins deck. So... You're in a weird spot where you can't really play Egor Goblins. So, kind of sucks. I don't know how you feel about that. Did you just say Egor Goblins? Yeah, that's what I call the Chandra, the Chandra decks. <laughs> the, the decks that play four Chandra Goblins. Which, oh I don't know God. if people haven't seen that. I guess it hasn't been on the podcast. But they put Torture Defiance in the Goblins deck week one of Kaladesh. And that way, you have four mana. Your Chandra pluses for two mana. It gives you interaction. And then you actually want a sideboard Chandra in the Goblin deck already. Because there are grinding matchups where Chandra is good. Uh, and so that saves you a little bit of sideboard space. And so you can kind of pre-build. It actually might be right going into this weekend with all the mid-rangey decks. Like Sultai is like kind of getting pushed as the other deck. Maybe you're supposed to play some number of Chandra's main. But I call it E-Girl Goblins. Because so. Chandra's there and everyone comes in to see her. She like gets the... It's like Pokemane. Queen. Uh, yeah. Queen. Queen. Yeah, anyways, uh, yeah, I, I think Goblins, it continues to not put up great results when not at the Pro Tours, which probably means it is better than we think it is, but also that it's a deck that uh, a player still can get leveraged, which is which is cool. That is cool to see that. It seems that way, but every time we see Brickchat play it, they go very far, and same with other players as well. Um for the sake of time, though, Sultai Midrange. Allison, this is the Blade. It is the best deck. It is also one of two decks that has... Oh, sorry. There's only... Yeah, there's two uh, decks in the format here that have the confidence intervals, right? Like highlighted like you talked about. It is one of the few decks that actually has that. It has it for four-color midrange and goblins. So we, we can talk with that data a little bit more. They've played a bunch of those matchups, which makes sense. They're the three most popular decks. Um, Ali, what do you think about Sultai Midrange? I, what I think is super interesting here is that it beats four color mid range because I think people, especially post the uh, PT, were trying to get um, their four color decks just hyper focused against Saltai to get an edge in the mirror. And it just, I suppose, ended up not being what everyone thought it was. And it's just better to not kind of sewer your mana base to yeah. uh, <laughs> win the mirror. <laughs> Yeah, I, the the Teferis and stuff are kind of strong, and that's a spot where like a lot of us uh, in the you know the Discord we hang out, we're kind of leaning towards right. It's like, yo, Sultan Midrange with Teferi, it doesn't get gusted, da 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 da. And I I think what kind of bared out over the course of the week is like your mana isn't very good at the four. It's fine, but it's not as good as the Sultai deck, and you can't afford to stumble in those sort of mid range mirrors when you have cards like Nissa, Uro, Hydroid Crisis in the decks, right? Like they're going to punish you. Um, it's just not allowed. And furthermore, that Gust actually just doesn't... It, it matters, but it's like 
it's kind of overhyped how much Gus matters in the Soltai mirrors. Um, if you're not tagging Anissa and then following up with Anissa, or it's not saving your life, it actually isn't that great. Um, it's like a financial turn arrow, but like you actually just can't load up on Aether Gus. So the idea of playing four color to help kind of dodge that with cards like Teferi actually is kind of like, well, you're, you're sacrificing a lot for Teferi, which is good, but it's not like as insane as it turns out to be. And I think the numbers kind of bore that out. I also think you're just getting the castles. Uh, the Sultai decks all play one of each, the blue and the black castle. I think those matter a lot. How do you feel about yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. I I think Castle Lockdown is one of just my favorite cards mm -hmm. lands in general. I think that card's very good and very underutilized. It feels like it fits really well in Sultai, especially when you're gaining life, so you can just like not be afraid to activate it when you already have like four or five cards in hand. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I think this deck is good. I mean that that goes without saying. Do you, I guess my question to you before we move on is, do you think Sultai is as good as people are making it out to be? Because right now the narrative is Sultai is the deck. You have to play Sultai. Like, it's the it's the best. And the data here shows it has a 59.5% win rate against the field, which is an insane win rate uh, across a, a metagame like this. It, it is actually very impressive. But, you know, like we talked about, a lot of points there. What do you think, Allie? Yeah, I, I do think it's probably just the best deck in historic right now i don't think that means it's unbeatable or you can try and work on a different deck or you can play a different deck like i like i can beat saltai with jun sacrifice but um obviously that doesn't change that saltai is just like one of the most powerful decks you can beat it but Ugh. Got a hater out. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I I feel like Sultai mid range is the definition. So it's like very good. Don't get me wrong. But like it, when I when I talked earlier about like going into SCGs and like real especially real life events. So like the bar is like we have to play like a fine deck, like a deck that does its thing every time and is consistent. Sultai looks like that kind of deck, and it turns out it just actually does some of the most powerful things and interacts with the meta game. Um, with things like Thoughtseize, Fatal Push, your ability to have the cyborg answers you want, have things like Tails in, which have picked up in popularity, and be able to play all those cards main deck, I, I think actually gives you a lot of game, and it, it becomes very hard. It becomes, the narrative's much more to me about, like, all right, what can we do that's not Sultai? Because we know we can fall back on Sultai, and, like, this is the baseline if we're going to play another deck. Like, our deck has to be doing something that's better than the Sultai game plan. It needs to be going over the top. It needs to be going under it. We need to have some other angle because when it comes to like these kind of grindy fair game plans that consistently play out, the Sultai midrange deck is kind of the gold standard. It's just very, very good at doing this. Um, yeah, for sure. It, it, it feels weird to kind of have this like midrangey Jund-esque deck at the top of the format, but... Uh, honestly, I think this deck sucks if you don't have Uro, so. Oh, you mean like if Uro is gone? Yeah. Yeah, it, it definitely, the deck lacks, a, my, my, my biggest complaint with the deck, actually, is twofold. One, you have to hit all, you have to hit lands one through five on curve, or ahead of curve, but you, you need to have five lands by turn five every time. And if you don't, your game plan actually gets way worse, because your deck 
try to stay the double spell or play big things. And but the other thing is you lack a way to win uh, if you don't have things like Nissa or Uro on the board uh, kind of on time. And like there, there was conversations about like maybe we're supposed to be trimming Nissas for other things in these Uro decks or these Sultai decks. And that those sort of conversations very much get into like the whoa, we are like inbreeding and we need to be able to actually win a game of Magic. Because winning is highly underrated in Magic and is very, very good, I promise. So actually winning a mm-hmm. game is something that I'm pretty big on. And I, I think the Sultai Midrange deck, that is one of its biggest flaws, is actually closing a game out in a timely way. I think that's why you see things like Rakdos Sacrifice um, do such a good job against it, is they had those like early aggression, right? They can like put pressure on it, but they can actually still kind of go long if the opponent isn't killing them next things like cat oven right and it's like okay this isn't much damage but you actually just can't kill me and the ways you do kill me cat oven kind of can mitigate for a little bit and also your ways of killing me are weak to like my main deck claim the first board and stuff like that so it becomes really awkward for you so yeah i i think the soul tide deck is the gold standard right now but um i don't think it's the only thing you can play i think there are a couple other decks here that are quite good uh Azorius Control Alley you said you talked about playing it. You're pretty happy. How do you feel about it now, though? We're, we're post that event. We're post that weekend. How are you feeling about the old blue-white control? Uh, I I still feel really good about it. I'm really shocked at its win rate against Saltai, to be honest, because that just didn't mirror my own experience. But... Uh, the, uh, do you want to say it, or do we, just, do we just want to tell people how bad it is? <laughs> it's twenty four point six with twelve to thirty eight percent for the interval. I, I think that like truly shocks me because it, even the games I lost just felt really close. So I like to me, if it had a poor win rate against Salta, I would guess like forty eight percent or something similar. Like. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes me curious how many like actual matches they have in this matchup because it did not feel that bad from my perspective. Yeah, that would be interesting to know too. Do you feel like I feel like Azorius is almost worse than Sultai at winning the game? Do you feel like that might be part of the problem? Or does that like not has that not been a problem when you've played that matchup? Because I'll be honest, I have. Uh, continued to avoid blue blue white control and mm-hmm. uh in historic currently um so yeah i think um i think the problem overall was or is a row and i think that's how saltai can kind of get back in the game Mm-hmm. is just getting the like the card advantage and eventually you get to a point where you're like double or triple spelling and azorius only has like one counter spell for you or whatever but sure that makes a lot of sense yeah i i, I think blue white control is pretty reasonable it has some matchups where it's very good um we, we saw that like in best of one specifically like when your opponents can't pivot their game plan something like azorius control is nice we saw it actually win the pro tour as well um so I think the deck's actually pretty good. It's just not... I think there are better options, and I don't think it's, like, heads and shoulders above the field, but I think it, it passes the fine test, you know? Like, if you played that, I'd be like, really not Sultai? And I'd, like, wink at you, and they'd be like, ah, not Sultai. I'd be like, all right, all right, well, you know, you've picked a deck that isn't, like, a, a an atrocity or anything, you know? Um, so, 
Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just a totally reasonable deck. I don't have much more to say on it, do you? I want to talk about a deck that I know we both want to talk about. <laughs> Racto Sacrifice. Racto Sacrifice. It's the deck with the second highest win percentage against the field. Racto Sacrifice. Woo! What do you think about Rakdos? Because I, I think this deck is consistently undersold, and its ability to be aggressive while having high synergy game plans is undersold as well. But I'm curious what you think. I'm always surprised at like the flip between Rakdos Sacrifice and Jun Sacrifice, and I honestly just want a better breakdown of both of these decks because they can both be built a million different ways and like even to the extent to me like i view them as different decks but i, I agree and i think rakdos like, is like aggressive jun's like a mid-range deck but yeah but like i, I guess like the versions of rakdos are more similar but are Oh, I'm sorry. You mean like a breakdown of like the Jund, like the trail, the food, the cocoa? Is that what you're saying? Like, yeah, I, th I think it's less prominent in like Rakdos sacrifice, but I, I've still seen like various different Rakdos builds. Like, there's like this like hyper aggressive version that's like Gutter Bones, Dread Wanderer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But then there's also like the more mid rangey version, which is still aggressive, but like has Chandras and other kind of things. So I'm very like. Has Curious. both genres. Has, like, if, Acolyte of Flame. <laughs> yeah, if those even, like, make a difference, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I am curious about that, too. I think that would be really interesting to know. I know that Melee actually, um, they tweeted this week that they, they've updated their Jun for Historic, so you can actually categorize your deck as uh, Sacrifice, food, uh, food, or Coco. And I assume Sacrifice is just, like, a generic mid-range deck is the idea there. But hopefully that means with, with that sort of breakdown, maybe we can get, like, a MTG data follow-up tweet that has, like, the breakdown of that specific stuff, you know? Like, this is, like, what that looks like um, in the Matrix or whatever. That would be interesting to see. Um, yeah, for sure. Along those lines, I, I think I think the Rakdos deck just being an aggressive deck is nice. That helps with a lot of things. I think Dreadhorde Butcher is, like, a good magic card that gets... Uh, slept on a lot and didn't really have time to shine in its standard format but here in historic it it's good against every deck just because if you're on the play and you start hitting them it outgrows everything really quickly and does a lot of damage and i think that's like it sounds like i'm memeing but i i'm honest to god i, I think that's true <laughs> so yeah um, i i just feel like the racto sacrifice deck is probably like the third or fourth best deck in the format uh, and no one ever says it that way. I don't, I don't know how you feel about that statement, but that's kind of where I'm at. I, I was definitely really high on Rakdos going into the PT, and obviously I played that, but I think I, I ended up making the switch back to John Sacrifice, so I feel, like, weird that people are back on Rakdos Sacrifice. Although, again, there's, like, a million different ways to build Jund. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think um, Rakdos is linear game plan helps a lot with that and i think that the gen sacrifice decks can battle with these sultai mid-range decks and stuff like that and they can definitely beat the goblins decks but it's hard to actually beat both of those as a version of Jund. like if you want to beat uh sultai you probably want to be trailer crumbs but trailer crumbs can be goblins but not as consistently as like the coco version for example like that deck is much better against goblins so you're the, some of the bigger predators in the format uh kind of are 
pushing you in two different directions, I should say. And then the four-color mid-range deck, which is just, you know, Sultai with Yasharns, uh, also push you in one direction. But they're not like it's that much more of the field than goblins. And also, they weirdly have this random hate card to spike against you. And so that kind of forces you to be more, have like even a more mid rangey game plan, like Chandra's and stuff in the main deck. And then at that point, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm like, that not synergizing with either of these other plans. I'm kind of like a Corvald deck. And so now you have like these three different gen decks, like Ali talked about, and they're all good against, or they're all better against a specific top deck when it comes to percentage of the field but they don't line up super well against the others. Like, you're losing points in the others. It's not like you're 0%, but you are worse. So, uh, that's kind of my thoughts on it. Do, do you agree, disagree, before we move on? Yeah, no, I agree. Word. Yeah. You love to hear it. All right, let's talk about Jun Sacrifice just for a hot second then, since we did talk about Rakdos. Um, love Jun Sacrifice. I love playing Gen Sacrifice. I do yeah. think, on average, for the reasons I just mentioned, I'm lower on Gen Sacrifice. But I think if you can snipe what people are doing and you hit the right matchups, uh, I would not be surprised to see Gen Sacrifice do well in an event. And I think the difference between it and Rakdos, like its numbers now and being close to Rakdos Sacrifice, really does matter on the matchup lottery in a way. So that's all I have to say on it. If you want to go on your soapbox about Gen, go off, Queen. I'm here to listen. Uh, I I still really like Jund. I think um, I honestly think this data set is uh, I I am super biased, but I think this data set's a huge uh, reason to like point out what we did at the beginning of analyzing this is that the there's just like not enough data. There's 59 Jund sacrifice decks, and we don't know which version of Jund we're looking at. Right? There's million different versions of jund if we're playing like trail of crumbs version then sure this win rate kind of looks accurate i think the deck's not very good but if we're looking at like mid-range aggro coco versions i think this is uh just not accurate mm. i think that's fair do you think i guess my last question would be do you think the mana has anything to do with this because i think the narrative kind of is that rakdos's mana is worse than jun's and mana is a huge i think barrier to entry on having a good deck um yet we see jun not perform as well obviously like we said we're looking at like kind of a blob for all the jun decks do you think that matters at all or do you think it's much more about like the type of sacrifice deck you choose to play determines a lot of this percentage i think it's the type of sacrifice deck we play um because if we are playing, like, the Trail of Crumbs version, then, yeah, your mana's pretty bad because you're trying to, con like, it, you're trying to play a turn one cat and a turn one goose or still have, like, claim mana at some point to just, like, it, a lot of your one drops are just kind of competing with each other, uh, like, mana color-wise. There's just, like, a huge variation there where, like, the Coco versions, is it's essentially just a Rakdos deck anyway, and then you have a pathway to splash for Coco, which has felt really good. Yeah, I think that seems fair. All right, let's talk about the Paradox Engine combo decks. These are, I feel a little mislabeled. They are definitely uh, Paradox combo decks, but I feel like they're much more mid-rangey. They've kind of popped back up on the scene in the last week, and the, the difference from when Kaladish first dropped is they're not like all in, like, art, mono artifact decks. They are like blue green and maybe splash a color 
engine decks that attempt, attempt to assemble engine, Embry, Chromatic Sphere, and a Mana Rock, and then just loop that and win the game by creating infinite mana, draw your deck, play a Karn, get an Aetherflux Reservoir, repeat. Um, and they have added Uro and Kennen, the blue-green mythic from Ikoria, that doubles mana if it was produced by a non-land permanent. Um, and that is kind of their deck. And I, I think this is actually one of the best decks in the format. I think it's a top five deck for sure. Um, but I'm curious to hear what you think, because you and I actually have not got to talk about this deck at all, so I'm very excited to hear. Um, I actually haven't played this deck at all. I've mostly just been streaming, and I don't really feel comfortable playing decks on stream that I <laughs> have, like, no idea what's going on. Um, you should check so, out uh, cardkingdom.com yeah. slash Mason Clark this week. I talk about this deck, and I explain the combo. It's very easy. I, I think that's actually mm -hmm. the thing about this deck that is interesting is that it has a bunch of weird little side combos that you can do because you have, like, once you have Emery plus Paradox Engine plus Mana Rocks, you can, like, do a lot of things and make a lot of mana even if you're not, like, drawing all your cards, right? Like, if you have enough mana, the deck plays, like, uh, something Obelisk. I think it's, like, Forsaken Obelisk, but it's, like, a Mana Rock, but you can spend seven to blow up a permanent. And if you can make a lot of mana, you can spend your turn, like, blowing up permanents that your opponents have, you know? So you're, like, just kind of blowing their board up, right? Which is, like, a weird thing this deck can do, and it has other weird loops, but the main loop is actually very simple. It's if you have a Paradox Engine, an Emery, a Chromatic Sphere, and a Mana Rock, or even just a Llanowar Elves, just any way that untaps off the engine to make mana, you at that point have infinite mana in every card in your deck. And at that point, you just kind of play cards and your opponent eventually dies. And so it, it's weird that like this sort of combo deck exists in the format. And that's like a, a, a good amount of pieces. And obviously, Emery finds some number of the pieces. Um, and what I'm talking about, it seems like it's very easy to break up. But when you're playing the deck, it actually flows super well despite having all these kind of weird disjointed pieces that kind of work together. Like Chromatic Sphere plus Emery is good because that's like a free quote-unquote draw card every turn. And it gives you something to do with your Emery because you don't really have the Emery for anything else because it's a 1-2. And you have like these cards that don't do very much. And then like you, you like if you're playing the teamer version which has been kind of popularized by autumn burchette you have like escape to the wild so you have like a lot of ways to find your pieces and you create a lot of mana but it's almost like and this is kind of a weird thing to say so i'm curious to hear what you think about this uh hearthstone the h game a lot of their decks like they just like generate cards and you just have a bunch of cards at least back in the day and then you would have your 10 mana and you would just kind of like have to find ways to win when you generated cards at random or just like had a bunch of cards and you didn't have like a clear way to win except for maybe a, a two card combo that you try to get. And that's what this deck feels like. It feels like I just generate a lot of cards, I get a bunch of them, and then if I assemble my Emery Paradox Engine combo, I win, which is great. But I can also like Uro you or I can Karn you and I have a bunch of weird cards in my sideboard like Gate to the Afterlife, which I can use to like get Emery for haste combo kills, but I can also just grind you out by like buying that Kinnons and have a bunch of four fours where I can like grab the Sky Sovereign and over time beat you down and just plays like a lot of different game plans. So um, I'm curious to hear what you think about that. I know you haven't played the deck very much, but I'm sure you've played against it. It feels like everyone's playing this deck on ladder the last couple days. So yeah, the Mason Clark is the expert in this deck now, huh? I will be sure to check out your article. <laughs> I I think I've only played this deck, or against this deck, when I was playing uh, 
blue white control. Ooh, okay. And uh, Rakdos sacri- or Jun sacrifice and just like beat them before they could do anything. So I don't even think I've seen the full combo go off. Oh yeah. Okay. Those those are decks I I have found a hard time against. The the sacrifice decks are really good at breaking up your Emery part of the combo, and they also just like attack you kind of quickly. Which is frustrating when you're playing the deck. You're like, if I had a turn, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. yeah, for sure. It's definitely like a cool deck conceptually, though. I probably just need to see it go off. I don't know. Yeah, make I, it go off, Mason. I, yeah, I, I, I honestly think that I think it's one of the best decks in the format, and I think it's under. It is still getting figured out because it's so new, but the core engine is so strong. And it, it uses a card that I alluded to earlier that hasn't seen much love in Kennen, which is the blue-green human mythic um, from Ikoria, that if a non-land source would make a mana, it makes an additional oh, yeah. mana of that color. And this deck very easily plays, like, Lenore Elves, Kennen, play a Mox Amber, play a Karn. Because you, are like, have Amber plus Elves. And, like, you have things that do stuff like that a lot. Like, I've played... Elves into Kinnon, into play a Mindstone, into play a Mindstone, into the next turn, cast Escape for the Wilds, cast some spells. Like, you can do that sort of thing a lot with this deck. And it's a really powerful card that's, like, really underexplored, and this deck uses it to a lot of effect. It also has a mode where you can, like, spend seven mana and look at, like, I think five cards, and you put a non-human into play. So you can hit, like, uh, your Elves, your Uros, your Emery's, like, it, it, it's, it's all very powerful and it just kind of plays out like a kind of mopey mid-range deck that has this combo kill and generates a lot of cards and a lot of mana really quickly so i loved playing keenan and kethis oh yeah that was fun yeah yeah that's the other deck that's explored and it was so powerful there right like it's interaction with chromatic sphere where you actually go up a mana and draw a card is like it's surprising how strong that is like your spheres become free on the turn you play them and sometimes it doesn't seem like a lot but it's really important. And also the turns where you set up the spheres ahead of time. And then suddenly you're like, okay, play my Kinnon. All right. Or Keenan, sorry. Uh, draw a lot of cards, gain a bunch of mana, play this thing. Those sort of play patterns are really punishing. And so I, I think this deck's really good. And I think you're smart enough to figure it out. And you know that once you have every <laughs> Paradox Engine sphere, you've won. And that's all you need to know. So. <laughs> do you just like, do you have a Thassa's Oracle? Or like, how do you win? Uh, you have Karn the Great Creator in your deck, and then you have Aetherflux Reservoir in your sideboard. Ah. And then if oh, your yeah. opponent tries to exile the Aetherflux Reservoir, you have a Tormont Crypt. And since you have four Karns, you'll play Crypt, Crypt yourself, play another Karn, get the Aetherflux Reservoir back, go again. Smart. Yeah. And then you also have other combos in the deck. Like, the deck has something called Relic Statue. This is like, Autumn is so good at figuring out these, I'm just going to say it, terrible ways to win a game that do have niche situations where you should use them. But Relic Statue is a 4-mana 2-3 that would enter the battlefield. You return a permanent to your hand. So what Autumn does is they play Relic Statue a bunch, and they play Aetherflux Reservoir and another spell, and they win. And that's how they win when they don't have Emery. Because <laughs> you just pick up the Relic Statue with an Aetherflux, and you loop it. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like an actual Splitter Twin. <laughs> You have to have the mana rocks for the Paradox Engine, obviously, right? Like, to, to go off. But that's Autumn's way to beat, oh, what if they killed my Emery? Uh, and it's like... I love that... Splinter Twin situations. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, honestly, I would love to see you try it. And if Twitch chat says anything, I'll just ban them. I'm a mod. I'll take care of it. Uh, Mono Red Aggro. 
Beep, beep, go burr. I think Mono Red's pretty good. Um, I actually don't have a lot to say about Mono Red. I think it's underrepresented. I think being aggressive and proactive is great in Historic. Uh, it's gotten worse over time. Sultai kind of punishes you a little bit, but I think it's still like a good plan. I know how you feel about that. Yeah, it seems like it has a good backup plan and can be resilient to a lot of hate. I just have been enjoying playing Junsack against it. No, that's fair. Yeah, you. That, that actually is probably the biggest reason not to play the red decks is your sacrifice matchup is abysmal. It is really yeah, that's bad. <laughs> it, it's yeah, I, I, I think that's another point too is like I would have liked to see the Paradox Engine combo decks being broke down into the different uh, types of decks as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are three versions. There's Sultai as well yeah. that we didn't talk about, which is more grindy. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a good point. I, I, I do think the data people need... You need to use your clout for good, Allie, and say, hey, give us a follow-up tweet. Heart. You know, like, let them know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't have much to say on Mono Red. I think it's fine. You do have a really hard time against some of these top decks. But I, I think proactive nature of your deck, you can really cheese people out. I think that's undersold how important that is. And, excuse me, if a deck like Sultai stumbles, you do kind of capitalize and kill them every time. Rakdos Arcanist. It's one of my favorite decks to play, and I think it is maybe unplayable until Uro is gone. That's my, my take. What do you think? Sorry, what was that? Rakdos Arcanist. I think it is unplayable until Uro is gone. I love that deck. I think it's so much fun. I think it's unplayable. It's just not good enough. Yeah, it's really interesting. People are deciding to play it against uh, Uro decks and it, like Sacrifice too. It's just its matchup against Sacrifice is so bad as well. I don't know why people keep trying to play it. Yeah, its matchup data is weirdly good against the Sultai decks compared to what I think it would be. But I think it's just actually like a worse mid-range deck and the people that tried to beat Sultai are just going to beat you almost as a casualty, you know? You're like, you know, yeah. those movies where someone gets hit by the car while they're chasing the bad guy? That's you. You're just getting, like, got <laughs> for no reason. I, I actually think this example is probably one of the best for the, like, small sample size thing that we keep going back to. There was 29 Rectus Arcanus decks. And so we're looking at Saltai Midrange. It says it has a 61.1% uh, win rate against it. But if we look further, that's <laughs> the, the, like, gap between that is 38 percent and 84 yeah. percent because there's so little decks so you just like cannot be confident in this number at all yeah for sure it and it's like that for mo most of the things too right like the next deck is azorius control as a 30 percent win rate the interval is zero percent to 61 percent like like all, oh all, my the, gosh, all the decks are like this look look, look at sacrifice <laughs> you you read sacrifice you read sacrifice oh my god versus versus oh which okay oh, oh the rakdos one is one to 99 percent it has a 50 percent win rate uh, according to the big number and if you look at the interval it's one to it literally says we don't know we know it's not zero though but we don't know yeah yeah, looking versus like Azorius Auras, we have two percent to a hundred percent. So oh. that tells me there were two matches with this deck, maybe three if we're going to a hundred instead of two percent. But like, yeah, well, we're, there's worth, just like no data you can draw yeah. from that. Oh god, it's so yeah. And so when we say this and say this, right? Like this is a great way 
to start a conversation and to start on a place. And you know, our Patreon question is like, where do you start as a net decker? This is another thing, right? Where it's like, there's a lot of information you can glean here. You need to be wary of it. This isn't the Bible, but what this can tell you is it can kind of give you like a, at least a general idea, especially for the decks that have a, a large sample size, right? And if you're someone also who maybe doesn't have a lot of people you can bounce ideas off of, this might be a lot more helpful, but try to take all of this with a good grain of salt and please look at the uh, confidence interval. All right, Azorius Auras. Um, this is our second to last deck we're gonna talk about today. What do you think about this deck, Allie? I've always been super unimpressed with this deck, but again, I've been playing against it with Sacrifice and Claim the Firstborn mm -hmm. and Priest of the Forgotten Gods, so. Yeah. I, I think it's... I think it's solid. I think it has a lot of play against, like, other decks. I I just feel like it folds really easy to popular cards in the format, so I've never been a huge fan of it. I think that's fair. I, I am definitely an Azorius Auras truther, and by that I mean I actually think this deck is super polarizing in the matchups, but the matchups where the polarization is good for you, it's really, really good. Like, I, I have found it my Goblins matchup to, like, be good, uh, and in fact, there, there's some pretty good data to even support this here. So the the big number, if you don't read, says 88%. Golly gee against goblins. That's really good. But if you look at the confidence interval, it's still 64% to 100. And 64% win rate versus a deck is good. Like, you're like, holy cow, that's a great matchup. Despite what people say when they're like, oh, I think my matchup's 70-30. There's very few matchups that are actually like that. And, like, having a 64% win rate against a deck would be like, whoa, I'm happy to have that. Um that, that's a good like quick thing to bring up too is that like like if we're looking at these decks like anything above average like like 54 percent 55 percent like that's a good matchup in reality because there's it, it's so it it you rarely get when you get a good sample size you rarely get to a point where there's actually like a 70 30 matchup yeah, my guess would be one of the few matchups in Magic that is 70-30, to give an example to people, is Ad Nauseam versus Infect. And uh, I don't know if people haven't played much Modern, basically the Ad Nauseam deck cannot die from combat damage. The deck has a billion ways to not die from combat damage in it. But Infect does Infect damage, and so they, they die very quickly on turn 3 every time. That being said, yeah. it's probably 70-30. And that's yeah, like... There, there's a reason matchup. when we get like these decks that actually have enough data that like the win rates are 56 percent for goblins versus four color mid-range or even like in an extreme salty mid-range versus four colors 61 percent, and that's like absurd like that's a really good win rate yeah yeah I, I i think i think people forget that sometimes when we're talking like 60 40s and like that kind of stuff when we're, we're like talking to your friends and stuff what we're really saying is like how it feels and we're trying to like make prove a point but people don't actually mean 60 40 and if they do you should be like whoa your deck's busted we should play it you know <laughs> like wow your deck's 60 40 against everything that's so good yeah especially uh, when it's like one of the best decks in the format if you have like a 70 percent win rate against like goblins you should probably be playing it yeah yeah if your goblins and soul time matchup are 60 40 at worst you need to be registering that deck you're probably you probably have the best deck in the format by a lot anyways 
Um, <laughs> Auras, I think it's pretty good. Nine lives. Allie, we have a Splinter Twin situation. If we get Slimity and nine lives in play, we cannot die from combat damage, much like Ad Nauseam. I played against this deck once while playing Azorius Control and then never saw it again. <laughs> <laughs> I have played against it a couple times with Rakdos Sacrifice, which is pretty funny, because your cat actually does do damage because it's loss of life. And so you can kill them through their Splinter Twin. Uh, and they also get take damage from Priest of the Forgotten Gods because it's each opponent loses life. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I, it's funny. Well, there you go. Off the stick. <laughs> yeah. It, I, I think there's something to this type of strategy or whatever, but I think it's much more fringe. Um, it's a true prison deck for sure. Uh, I, I've played a little bit of it now, and what I found is there are some things you just can't beat, and there are some things you just can't lose to, kind of like Azorius uh, Auras. But the key difference, and I want to make this clear to people, is that Azorius Auras, I think, is like a top five deck in Historic, maybe a little outside that range right now, uh, because it's proactive. So when we play against a deck that's a bad matchup, right? Like, let's just assume for a second Goblins is a bad matchup. It's not, but let's just say it is, right? The fact that I can go, like, one drop, Spirit Dancer, flying, plus three, plus three, like, you know, like, hit them really hard means the matchup turns into a good one. Like, I, I can win that matchup, right? The Nine Lives deck is has another good Goblins matchup, but, like, pretend it didn't for a second. You have to sit there and beat all of their cards. Like, you have to assemble all these weird lock pieces. Like, okay, I have to get this Gideon Intervention down so I can beat this card, and I've got to get the Resting Piece down so I can beat that card, and I get the Cade so I can beat this. And, like, you have to assemble all these pieces, and you could beat them, but it's a lot harder than just, like, play my body, suit it up, kill you. And that, I think, is highly underappreciated in magic and not talked about a lot so like when i say that it's a lot like auras where like you're polarizing matchups just know that like it's much harder to win the matchups that are bad and so it actually leads to more extreme uh results i think like like if you look at the cat data minus the ones that are one to 99 percent like against mono red aggro uh, it, it is very much polarized it is like 70% plus matchups and 0% matchups. It's like across the board here. It's very interesting. Yeah, for sure. Nine lives, nine lives. All right, Allie, hot take on nine off lives. It. Off it, perfect. You love to hear it. All right. All right. Last, we have Other, uh, which we talked about how it's a bunch of this data we can't even use. The only deck I want to talk about real quick before we go is Blue-Black Control. I, I think Blue-Black Control, like Azorius Control, has a lot of merit right now. I think it is pretty good against Sultai. Um, thanks to like things like Narset, uh, which are kind of soul time mirror breakers. It has a lot of answers. You have ways to beat Uro. And then I do think you have uh, a way to win matchups that we we talked about how Azorius control has a hard time winning. I think, uh, commit memory plus Narset actually does a really good job of winning games. As long as you're able to like stall the game out and keep a Narset on the board, you should be able to win when you resolve that combo. Um, I started playing it a little last night and I, I was pretty impressed. So that's me. I don't know how you feel about all that. I, I I liked the ideas of the first like iterations of those. Um, when Kaladesh was released, because Torrential Gear Hulk's cool, but I haven't really seen much of it since then. Mm -hmm. Since like the first few days. That's fair. Yeah, it's definitely a, a dark horse pick, but uh, I, I think it's like a pretty reasonable. Like if we go back to that reasonable deck choice thing. I, I think it's about as reasonable as Azorius Control. Um, I think you just have points in different places. So, And you're able to actually win games. 
Oh, you also have the Splinter Twin Situation Alley of Sublime Epiphany plus Gear Hulk. Have you done that yet? I'm not. You, so you know Sublime Epiphany is the counter spell that has all the different modes. So you will Sublime Epiphany, uh, your cast Gear Hulk, Sublime Epiphany, and you'll do the modes, and one of the modes you'll choose is create a, a token copy of Gear Hulk. And then you'll get to Gear Hulk again for some spell, which is sweet. But you can also have a Gear Hulk and play Sublime Epiphany their thing and make a token copy of the Gear Hulk there. It hits the graveyard, and then the token sees the one in the graveyard. You get to do it again, so you get to make two Gear Hulks and unsummon two things. Poggers. Wow. And draw two Poggers. cards. That's Splinter Twin. Beep, beep. You also probably draw like a Hieroglyphic Illumination. You draw two more. It's pretty great. It's a good time. Alrighty then, Allie. We're heading into this weekend. It's the top 1200 thing. We've kind of given our thoughts on the decks in general, the things we kind of like. Where are you leaning right now on this uh, afternoon? Uh, my responsible recommendation is Saltai, but I would play Jun Sacrifice to the surprise of no one. Word. What build a Jun Sacrifice? You can't just say Jun after preaching about how they uh they don't get categorized well. Yeah, just like uh, collected companies, I think um, a lot of like the the PT decks were essentially just like a rack sack deck, and you put collected company in the main and Corvold in the side is where I want to be. Word sounds good. I think I would just play Sultai, but if I wasn't gonna play Sultai, I would play Rakdos, Azorius Auras, or Blue Black Control. I think that's where I would be. Oh, Paradox Engine. I'm so sorry. I, I would also play the Paradox Engine deck if I can find a build. It has, like, one more good mana sink. I feel like the deck is missing one. Like, I just needed one more card that's, like, a good use of my mana. Like, a, I would kill for a walking ballista. So, if I can find something like that and where people... I, I should say, if other smarter people than me post a deck list that has that, I'm going to play it. Uh, but until then, I am, I am going to let them figure that out. That is it for this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. If you want to find Allie, you can go to twitch.tv slash mythic underscore amiibo or twitter.com at mythic amiibo and you can find me at mason e clark and on card kingdom each and every week under the blog section thank you all so much for listening we'll see you all next time for another episode of constructed criticism <laughs>